0: legalizedfreedom.com.
1: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Frank Joseph. Inspired by his recent book, Power Places and the Master Builders of Antiquity, Frank discusses some of the mysteries of the megalithic age and legends of lost civilizations. The peoples of the Neolithic era bequeathed us some of the most amazing achievements and profound puzzles in human history. From cryptic stone circles to archaean rituals and rites, and a science of the stars we are still struggling to comprehend, ancestors once regarded as ignorant and inferior continue to emerge as remarkably advanced and arguably much more in tune with their natural surroundings than contemporary civilization. England's Stonehenge and Newgrange in Ireland are but two of the better-known Neolithic sites in the British Isles, but throughout Europe, hundreds of locations, some just as breathtaking, Feature the remains of Neolithic construction. What are we to make of the quarrying, cutting and transportation techniques, some of which we are unable to replicate today, which made possible the manipulation of vast stone monoliths, some weighing several hundred tons, and why was the specific type and location of these stones so crucial to the ancients? We also consider just what befell the civilizations of high antiquity, not just in Europe, Around the world, some slid into steep decline, while others vanished virtually overnight. Immortalized in mythic tales such as those of Atlantis and Lemuria, of the biblical flood and great deluge, can the apparent cataclysms and catastrophes of eons past teach us anything about the present, or indeed the future? Hello and welcome, Frank, and thank you so much for joining us once again on legalizedfreedom.com.
0: Well, the pleasure is all mine. I really enjoy our times together here.
1: Wonderful. Uh, Frank, today we're going to be having a conversation that's inspired by a recent collection of writing that you put out under the title Power Places and the Master Builders of Antiquity. Before we dive into that, just for listeners who don't know, give them a little bit about your background and your work in general.
0: Well, uh, I suppose uh, my background is primarily as an alternative science reporter. Uh, My professional educational background is in journalism and language. So, uh my job is I believe to report on some of the uh aspects of especially ancient civilizations uh, that are not uh, found in the general uh, uh, media and that's been the the focus of my my uh, writing for magazines and books is to uh make a uh, uh, people like myself, who are interested in these things, aware of some of the terrific discoveries that are going on today.
1: Uh, you were editor for many years of Ancient American magazine, uh, and also you worked for Fate magazine, which is a very long-running title indeed. In fact, this new collection of writing that I just referred to, many, if not all, of the pieces are drawn from your past articles, and what have you, for Fate.
0: Yes, that's correct. Fate magazine was launched in 1947, and it still is in publication today, and that's quite a track record, uh, not only in terms of longevity, but uh, the the print media, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, has gone uh, undergone a revolutionary uh, decline. If there's no other way to put it. And anybody that can survive uh, as a print medium today uh, must say something to the readership and that uh, is interested in this magazine. And so it's been my privilege to write for Fate magazine from I think the first article was published in 1989, and then the most recent one, or the last one I've done, was just before the book came out, um, which was last year.
1: Now, the two main threads we're going to draw out from this uh, collection of articles is the megalithic civilization, Mm -hmm. which was uh, quite widespread, global in fact, and uh, some of the mysteries surrounding that, and also the general idea of higher civilizations in the distant past, which may have been in some ways more advanced than our own whether socially or technologically and that's this is a powerful idea isn't it really and i think it's perhaps summed up in in mythic writing anyway in the concept of atlantis but we have there's evidence all across the world that civilizations in the past some of which we understand better than others were able to achieve things particularly in, in the realms of like, you know, the physical remains that they've left behind that today we find absolutely mystifying and puzzling. And indeed, when we've tried to recreate them, we've uh, generally failed.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a, just absolutely astounding to think that a pre-industrial people who th- were thriving thousands of years ago were able to invent, master, and apply levels of technology that absol- absolutely mystify us today, and it, that very fact alone—and it is a fact—I uh, think should encourage people to take a greater interest in what the ancient megalith builders did.
1: Because, the, yeah, the popular attitude for a long time has been generally quite dismissive of past civilizations, if not entirely of their achievements, then of the idea that they were somehow "quote unquote" better than us. Because even mm-hmm. though we might look at something like the you know the ancient pyramids of Egypt, for example, and marvel at what an achievement that is. We feel that, generally speaking, uh, human civilization is on an upward arc where they, so far, the the pinnacle of that, the apex and things generally can only get better from here on in. So, by definition, that which came before us must have been, in general, inferior.
0: Right. That is, uh, of course, uh, a mainstream view that uh, held sway for many, many decades, actually centuries but uh, that's pretty much uh i think in decline now because uh, our own civilization is obviously in a great deal of trouble and uh our technology is just really not keeping pace with our sociological decline and that's one of the great achievements i think of the ancients is that there is a, a there was a working organic relationship between the general health and happiness of society and its great achievements. And it's only when sociologically their civilizations began to unravel that they also experienced a decline in their material greatness. Maybe the same parallel can be made with us today. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's another thing that I think that can be learned. The, the past isn't something that's just relegated to ancient history. It has no connection to us at all. I think that the, the greatest lessons that a civilization can learn are from those of, of past civilizations. That's what we're talking about today.
1: Two things spring to mind there. When we look back into the past, particularly into the, the distant past, sometimes you know, as far back as we can go to the point where things become... Really, really murky, and we can say almost nothing about those times. A couple of threads come up there's a re- repeating motif of the rise and decline of civilizations, and this seems to repeat and it's something actually in this day and age that we seem to be a little bit in denial about you know the idea that the civilization that that we're part of could ever effectively go away or, or radically change to become unrecognizable. but it does seem to be the pattern of the past doesn't it and then there's a the question of in past civilizations sometimes it's been quite clear why they have declined and imploded. Like, you know, the Roman Empire, for example, generally speaking, it was overreach. And you could say that, you know, that the the American Empire is going the same way. But with other civilizations, it's less clear. So there's kind of, there's the rise and fall of civilizations, and then there's the question of what their undoing is caused by. Is it uh, self-inflicted? Or is it somehow like sort of an act of God? You know, there's certainly evidence embodied once again in myth, in uh, the myth of the Great Flood, for example, that natural disaster can play a part in that. And of course, it could be some ki- combination of the both. Oh, sorry, some combination of both.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a combination of things. Uh, it isn't just one thing. An example of that that uh, we talked about, uh, you, you mentioned the Great Flood and natural catastrophes. Uh, we can take, for example, the island of Crete, And there was a very high and sophisticated civilization that arose there more than 4,000 years ago. That was the Minoan civilization. And around 1628 B.C., around, that probably is the date now that's generally accepted, 1628 B.C., there was a volcanic eruption on the island of Thera that was equivalent to a major nuclear event. And it threw the entire civilization of Crete into uh, precipitous decline. But yet, within the space of a couple of generations, two or three generations after that, the Minoans had rebounded and went on to create, actually, their golden age after that. It used to be believed that the eruption of Thera completely obliterated uh, Minoan civilization. It did not. Now it's understood that it, it did tremendous damage, of course, and pushed it to the brink of obliteration, but really the people themselves, they still had their social coherence. They still had a a feeling of commonality and and brotherhood amongst themselves. And they bounced back from that and created, like I said, their golden age. And yet, their civilization declined only when they began to quarrel amongst themselves so that they became easy prey for the Mycenaean Greeks. The the, the, uh, From the heroic age of Homer and that was the end of Minoan civilization. So Minoan civilization withstood in effect a major nuclear attack in a natural sense, withstood that and rebounded. but it could not survive the internal dissensions that racked that civilization until it just sort of oozed out of existence rather than going out with a bang, as it, you would think uh, in 1628 BC. Just about less than 200 years later, they just sort of let it go, and that was the end of them. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. You know, they bring up the story of Atlantis, and that's a good parallel, but the the story of Minoan Crete is something that even mainstream archaeologists cannot quibble about because they know that these are the historic and pretty hardly riveted facts. And that's, I think, a very terrific parallel for our time you know, I mention something in the book, which is one of my most favorite sites, uh, because it's, just, I think, it's the most, really single, most stupendous site on Earth. In, in a sense, even greater than the Great Pyramid, because we don't know who made this. It's a place called, or it's a site called Ergrah, E-R-G-R-A-H. And this is the old uh, Britannic language. It's in Brittany, it's on the coast of France. And it's on a peninsula, kind of a peninsula sticking out into the Atlantic Ocean and a bay. And this stone, which is now broken, it's fallen over, was originally set up an incredible length of time ago. We're talking like about 4,300 B.C. This is even long before, centuries before Stonehenge was even conceived. And this stone was beautifully shaped like a kind of a needle. It stood almost 70 feet high. It weighed an incredible 327 tons. It was erected by a pre-industrial people. Pre-industrial, we're we're talking about really a Stone Age people. This is in, in Neolithic times. The stone was not only just set up, it was precisely oriented to various celestial phenomena, various star constellations and there this enormous megalith stood it could be seen from like 12 miles out at sea it was made of crystalline granite granite is among the hardest substances known on earth and yet it was it wasn't uh, sculpted in the sense of you know a statue but it was worked it was formed And it had on its side, you can barely see it today on its lower form, a very large bas-relief of uh, an axe and a plow. What on earth was that about? It's beautifully done. And the, the astounding achievement of this thing is magnified by the fact that we don't know who did this. We just call it a Neolithic people. Well, who they were, no one knows. Never will know. But obviously, obviously, they were in possession of an incredibly high technology. Imagine today. Let's say you go to a construction engineer and say, "You know, um, I want this stone." By the way, the stone had to be moved something like about from ten miles away. How they even moved a three hundred twenty-five or three hundred twenty-seven ton? stone, which really weighed more than that, substantially more than that, because that stone was dragged to the Bay of Kuron and then worked there, and then set up. So let's say you go to a construction engineer today and <laughs> say, you know, I want this, let's say a 400-ton piece of granite. I want you to drag this thing about 17 miles, then I want you to work it and set it up perfectly in such a way that it's going to be precisely oriented to various celestial phenomena. You think you can do that for me? How long will it take you to do that? I mean, even by today's standards, uh, it'd be a bit challenging. And yet we're dealing with a people, supposedly Neolithic people, that had, you know, antler tools, and maybe they had a little, some stone tools, supposedly. And that sign, that symbol, has been decoded. We know what that sign was because that sign is still in existence and used among various folkish groups in the British Isles and in western France. That is a symbol for uh, a constellation, which is very famous. It's called the Big Dipper. It's also known as the Plough in parts of France and northern England, northern Britain. The Hammer, well, what's that? The hammer has been tentatively, not definitely, but it looks like this is what it meant to the ancient Neolithic peoples, that the hammer, as was later carried down amongst the Norse people, was a symbol of lightning. The symbol of the god of lightning was associated with Thor or Donner in the Norse sense, in the Germanic sense today. So here you have, like, this symbol of lightning coming out of the constellation of Ursus Major, or the Big Dipper. Now that stone, why would anybody go to such enormous difficulties to set up air gras? The stone, and why would you choose, of all things, granite, the heaviest and hardest thing to work with? Well, granite is crystalline, and the granite in... The Ergras monolith is has just thick veins of crystal. So when you set up a needle like that on a stormy coast like northern France and Brittany, you're begging for that thing to be struck by lightning. It's conceivable. This is a hypothesis, to be sure, but it is, I think, a credible hypothesis that this enormous work was set up to do multiple functions. One of them was to be seen out at sea, perhaps as some kind of a safe marker, the, because you could see it from 12 miles out at sea today. The other thing was that it was set up for um, astronomical associations, perhaps to help aid in agriculture or, or part of some ritual, we don't know. But it might have also been set up as a lightning rod because if these people were worshipping or had somehow associated lightning involved in their spiritual concepts, it would be a great thing if you could call down the god of lightning sometime. And that's conceivable that that's what this thing was. Now, that object, this, the Ergram monolith in France, stood there from about 4,300 BC until about 1627 AD, because at that time, there was a major earthquake in that area, a series of earthquakes, and there's a very great uh, British scholar by the name of Jean Michel, who died some years ago, and he was able to credibly show that Air Gras fell down during the course of this major earthquake that struck Western France. About 1625, 1627. They don't have the exact date, but he was able to put it within, uh, the parameters of its previous sighting when it was erect and a later sighting when it had fallen. And so it's, it's right around 1625, 1627 AD that it fell. What an achievement to set this thing up and have it stand there. <laughs> from 4300 BC until about 1625, 80. I mean, what are we doing today that's going to be around for the next, you know, for 5,000 years? I mean, it's just uh, astounding. So that's always, and I write about that in uh, Power Places. I don't go into it in great detail. The the purpose of this book power Places and the Master Billows of Antiquity is to just give little tastes of these various things I've gone into a longer description of it today in our uh, presentation here but if I had, people have asked me what uh, if I have any particular favorite in here and that's that's my favorite I try to top that <laughs> and it's there's so many implications with air grand it's it's not as well known as it should be so I was glad to write about it.
1: Well, yeah, this was the the largest known single block of stone to have been transported and erected by Neolithic people full stop. So, as you say, an incredible achievement by anybody's standards. But, I mean, never mind uh, going back that far in time to a monolithic achievement like that. In the the last few days, when we've had the uh, horrendous fire at Notre Dame, Uh, cathedral in paris it'll be interesting to see if they go ahead with their plan to rebuild depending on what route they go down with with what they recreate and if they try to just imitate what was there before if they go with a a more of a radical reimagining of it what issues they may hit when they're trying to do that because that's only going back uh, medieval times and we look at uh, medieval cathedrals being a a good example because they are kind of the, the pinnacle of architectural achievement of their time, and we're mystified by that. Even if we can see, oh, you know, there that's how that must have been done, and that's how that must have been done. It's like, how did they do it without power tools and without winches, without JCBs and all these things that we take for granted, and, and laser positioning and design?
0: Yes, I know, especially in Notre Dame, and what a catastrophe that is. Uh, but, you know, it's a funny thing, these structures, whether they're air gras or... Notre Dame, it's impossible to disassociate their physical being, their physical achievement from the times in which they were made and the times in which they were destroyed. And there's a lot to be said about that. As far as recreating Notre Dame, that's not going to be done. You know, it was made by guilds in the Middle Ages. These were guilds, and when you went into a guild, you were initiated into a secret fraternity because you had the equivalent of trade wars back then. If you were skilled in doing a particular thing, you didn't just share that with everybody because then that you they would steal your thunder, you would steal your work. So that if you were particularly good in something and you got to be known in it, and your guild was associated with uh, a a skilled craft. Then your employer, the king or the pope, would go to you, and so these are secrets from which Freemasonry, of course, evolved. That's a whole other story. But so there is a there is a spiritual aspect to these things as well, regardless of whether they're churches or castles or whatever. And I don't believe that they are going to. I, I don't believe that they are going to attempt the recreation of Notre Dame. That's not going to happen. If only because economically, it's impossible. We t- we'll be talking about billions of dollars if it could even be done. So what they're going to do is they'll create just like they did at uh, it'll be the same thing like they did at uh, the nine eleven site, the twin towers in New York. They'll create a memorial, a little museum, a gift shop, that sort of a thing, you know. And uh, isn't that wonderful? And uh, but there's not going to be any recreation. That's not going to happen. When he says. When McCollum said to he's going to rebuild it, he didn't mean he's going to recreate it. He's going to build something in its place. No, no, they will clean it up, and they'll put a little thing, a memorial about how uh, how great their... Uh, well, I don't want to get into anything. <laughs> I don't want to get us in trouble, so I won't say anything further about that. But uh, it's an example of the medieval uh, greatness also. Which came out of the Dark Ages? How does that figure? Because the Dark, after classical civilization fell in 435 A.D., all the greatness was lost, was gone, and Europe for the next 500 years went through a true Dark Ages. It's not just a common word; it was the epitome of universal ignorance. You know, we fell for five centuries, but then during the Crusades, interestingly enough, when uh, some Europeans began going through other parts of the world, Egypt and so forth, and they brought scholars along, they learned some of those things and then then Europe began to get reborn again. It had the high Middle Ages, which produced things like Notre Dame. And uh so I think and then eventually the Renaissance and we came back, you know. So these are lost these are lost secrets which are not as easily uh reproduced as some people might think. Well, what,
1: uh, what Macron said, uh, just for people who don't know, you know, the French president—that was pure politics. That's just uh, what people wanted to hear. We shall rebuild, and we shall do it in five years. You know, it's it's an easy thing to say. So,
0: oh, sure, yeah, and nobody's going to hold him to account anyway.
1: Well, he'll be, he'll, he'll he'll be gone by then, won't he? He'll be gone.
0: Yes, that's right. And so, what do we care? And they probably will build something within, you know, five years or a few years. You know, like I said, as a, a tourist center, they'll clean it up. And, and that, that'll be it. Mark my words. That's what's going to happen. They're not going to rebuild anything. They can't. <laughs> the French economy today—that's <laughs> all they can afford.
1: It was also uh, highlights the different motivations as well. Because what we can, as you, you speculated about the motivations of, of uh, you know, we were talking about when you were talking about Urgra about the motivations of the Neolithic peoples, and what we can maybe we can't really know anything about it. But you know, we can we can ponder. And and wonder, and maybe you know look for what clues there are, and we know a little yeah. bit. We know we know a little bit more about the motivations of people in the Middle Ages, you know, the cathedral builders. But yeah. the point there being was that there was a, a higher ideal that was driving the construction, and I'm not sure that, for example, that any attempt to do anything with with, the, with Notre Dame is going to be driven by any higher ideal, really. To be honest <laughs> with you,
0: uh, <laughs> these days, no. I, I agree with you 100%. I think everybody does. There's no ideal involved in that. Just, like I said, politics, that's all.
1: When you, when it is
0: a terrific uh, catastrophe, of course, and uh, the the destruction of this place, uh, not just for Catholicism, of course, especially for Catholics and for the Catholic Church, but I think all of us are that are aware of our European identity, especially, and what... Notre Dame was signified for the Western world for so many years, for eight, over eight centuries. Uh, it's a, it's a very terrible thing. It's a, it is a true catastrophe, a symbolic catastrophe. And I think that's what, uh, may have been in the mind of people who perpetrated this thing. And I'm not going to get into that, but, um, I have been following it as closely as I can, as I think many people are. And what it was interesting that when the building was actually on fire, when it was actually still on fire, the French government came out and made a statement to the effect that they've ruled out arson. And yet the, it's still on fire? I mean, well, we just know for sure that it wasn't arson, even though the building is already on fire. I mean, in other words, they're trying to program people in, in advance before there's even had a chance for any investigation. I think that's, that's quite remarkable. Well,
1: the, the only way that they could rule out arson, in, in my opinion, would be if they were concretely able to point to evidence for something other than that. And they weren't, they weren't offering any evidence of that sort. People were speculating about whether it was connected to the repair work that was go on, going on. You've got a lot more people in the building in mm-hmm. areas not normally accessible to the public and they're working with, well, all sorts of materials. Who knows what could happen. So that was the, the line of, you know, for me, if I had to bet A small amount of money on it. I said, "Oh, it's probably something to do with that, but let's wait and see." So to rule out arson, right, even even if if you're a a detective, you know, a policeman coming in to look at something, and you come and see a dead body, you don't say, "Well, I think we can rule out murder." There was a hang on (laughs) a (laughs) minute. That's
0: that's a perfect analogy. That's exactly what's happened. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's enough to make you suspicious. Now, if they had said nothing, if they just said it's a terrible thing, we don't know what caused it, well, sure, everybody would say, well, yeah, sure. But to come out right away and say, oh, no, there's no arson," That's enough to make your suspicions rise immediately. (laughs) So that was a dumb thing for them to do.
1: Well, we'll see what (laughs) happens in future. We'll see what happens in future. But, But like a lot of, from the political point of view, it's a regular thing these days to hear pronouncements about what politicians are going to do? What administrations is going to do? How when oh. they're to, when they're going to do it? And these things are quietly forgotten quite often. But and then,
0: if anybody brings it up, of course, then they just blame somebody else. They blame the opposition. Well, it would have happened except for this, you know. Plenty of excuses. Yeah, I think a lot of people like yourself are certainly in on this. It's, it's so obvious what's been going on, and but we shouldn't stray. I don't think too much from what we're talking about. Far more important than these puny political questions as the uh, the greatness of the megalithic achievement and you can kind of call uh, certainly Notre Dame as a kind of a the grandest of all uh, megalithic achievements. Megalithic really just means big stone, large stone, grand stone and that certainly was the work involved there. I visited, I, I was lucky enough to visit Notre Dame as millions of people have done of course um, a few years ago, a few decades ago come to think of it and i don't see how you can escape having a kind of a a spiritual thrill walking into that place i'm i was born and raised a roman catholic i'm no longer a catholic or or even a christian anymore but nonetheless when i walked into uh notre dame it was uh, uh, no, uh, greater than anything I expected. You know, when, when you hear and read about famous places, when you eventually see them, sometimes they're disappointing, they're not what you had in your mind, and other times they're greater than you imagined, and that certainly was Notre Dame. That's something to, to never forget, and um, that's, that's why it's such a terrible tragedy for uh, for the West, for mankind in general of course.
1: Well to use a, but, cu- a couple of words from the title of your book we'll come back to the power of these places in a few moments but when you were talking about gra earlier that, that enormous uh, 300 plus ton monolith that was one that I actually had to go and look up. Now I knew that that area of France which also is very close to Karnak was rife with uh, uh, megalithic um, artifacts But the fact that there was one there that I didn't actually know off the top of my head, it reminded me how places like Stonehenge and some other well-known stone circles, and to in a different capacity, the pyramids in Egypt, they tend to monopolize attention and our imagination when it comes to these things. But when you start looking into it, if we take the megalithic period, for example, you know there are megaliths all over Europe, and there are megalithic uh, era constructions all over the world, including North America. A lot of people tend to forget about that in the same way that there are pyramids dotted around the world that date from various periods, but some of them just as old as those in Egypt. So we're looking at global occurrences here. To to what extent people spread throughout the world were in contact with each other? Again, we can speculate about that, but it's another dimension of thinking about the past. That we tend to, in which we tend to denigrate those that came before us. And I think there's a lot of evidence that there were global connections going back that far, maybe even further.
0: Oh, I, I agree, 100%. Uh, sometimes it's possible that these um, parallels uh, were just um, part of human nature, and this was a way that people believed they could ascend to the heavens, as it were. But there are other times where things are very more specific. An example of that is the Great Pyramid. Uh, the most famous building on Earth. Now, what's interesting about it is that it has a very precise uh, base perimeter of uh, 13.4 acres. That's what it covers. And that was done for a part of the high mathematics that just absolutely infuse that entire structure. I'm not going to get into them, but there's that base um, line of 13.4 acres. On the other side of the world on my side of the world, in North America, in a place called the Ohio Valley, there was a very sacred center. It's called Mound City. And Mound City, this was the name given to it by the pioneers when they came in. Mound City had been evacuated and abandoned for centuries before the first pioneers saw it. And what Mound City was, a, a kind of a... Uh, square base with a berm around it. It also had terrific astronomical implications, and inside the sacred precinct were a number of pyramidal structures, all made out of earth, to be sure. Some people have tried to denigrate that, say, oh, well, the Native Americans over here, uh, they tried to make pyramids, but they only used soil and dirt, whereas the ancients in the old world, they used limestone and so on. Well, (laughs) Uh, Any architect knows that you build your structure with the materials that are at hand. Unless you really need something special, you'll go far away. But mostly, if you're building a large uh, edifice, you're going to use whatever materials are are readily available. Well, there wasn't any major stone or limestone or granite available, and it's not available in the Ohio Valley. So you have to build what what you have, which is dirt and clay, and you can do some pretty good things. The important thing is not the medium of a work, but rather the genius behind it, the mind behind it. Everything else is just a means to that end. But Mound City in, o, in the Ohio Valley, outside of a place called Chillicothe in uh, southern Ohio, is vi- available today to be visited. And this sacred place, perhaps among certainly the most sacred places of the uh, pre-modern people who lived here in North America... Is precisely 13.4 acres. So you could take the Great Pyramid of Giza and transport it and it would fit exactly, precisely uh, onto this sacred precinct which has its own smaller pyramids on the inside. Now is this entirely by chance? I, I, I rather doubt that. I think that's something that needs to be further investigated. Then we can take it even further. The largest Pyramidal structure in North America is outside of St. Louis in Illinois, outside a place called Collinsville, Illinois. It's known as Monk's Mound because there were some Trappist monks who lived there a couple hundred years ago. And this is an immense structure, again, made out of earth and clay. And it is larger at its base than the Great Pyramid, but it shares a tremendous commonality with it. This tremendous pyramidal structure over 100 feet high originally. It also had astronomical in, uh, orientations to it. Absolutely dominated the landscape for hundreds of years. Was built at the same time as the Great Pyramid of Egypt. In other words, you have these two immense, the Great Pyramid of Egypt and the Great Pyramid of North America were built at the same time. There's been uh, radiocarbon dating tests, the most Recent and updated and sophisticated radiocarbon dating tests at Monks Mound in Illinois, and found that it dates to the same time, same period, 2500 B.C., that the Great Pyramid in Egypt was built. So, what are we, what are we looking at here? Is it conceivable that the same pyramid builders who created the Great Pyramid of Egypt came to North America and built sacred architecture? I believe so. There are numerous other parallels, I bring up some of them in the book. Far too many for us to, to go in here, but I'd like to stress those two because I think they require uh, further investigation. Here you have two major structures, same time period, and then you have a third major structure, which is exactly 13.4 acres, the same base perimeter of the Great Pyramid. I mean, that's... I I, I can't see how someone could just fluff that off. Oh well, that's just coincidence. There are numerous other parallels, but those are those are three of the biggies, I think.
1: Well, I think in general what you've been mentioning about North American civilization, uh, you know, going back those few thousand years, and we know quite a lot about Central and South American civilization in terms of the you know monolithic building and construction. It reminds us that this idea that we have about North America in particular that in as, far, as far back in time as we can see, the history there was of like the rest of life on earth evolving there and, and the way that we, that we know about. And then the dinosaurs were in North America, some of the best dinosaur finds, fossil finds ever occurring in North America. Then there was megafauna. And then at some point, some humans made their way there, possibly. Uh, from what we now know as Siberia, across to Alaska, and then down. And then after that, it was primitive, 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 Native Americans, Native Americans, and then Europeans come, ta-da, civilization, and everything's in an uptick. And I think there's a, I know you've just mentioned a couple of the examples, but there's quite a few in your book that say, oh, hang on a minute here, it's just not as simple as that.
0: No, it isn't. And I think that the course of human civilization has risen and fallen more times than We'll probably ever know that there have been great civilizations that are today completely anonymous as far as we're concerned, and others who have left their mark and we know something about them, but they are totally and utterly gone and that's That's the great lesson i th- I think for our time, but it's a lesson that uh, human beings uh never seem to really apply even if they recognize it too late but you know i was I was thinking while we were talking too of some of the places I was really very lucky to to see years ago. And when I went to um, Inverness in uh, Scotland, and outside of Inverness, there's a place called the Druid's Temple, and it's not as well known by no means as these other places. And in a way, it's, it's just as remarkable. Again, it was a circle, as there, of course, were many dozens or hundreds, maybe originally thousands of these stone circles over the British Isles. But the one by Inverness called the Druid's Temple, just a name for it, doesn't mean the Druids were there. I'm sure it was built long before the Druids. It's um, actually in a farmer's field, and it's not the sort of a place where uh, that attracts large numbers of tourists, but it's extremely impressive. The circle is small, but it is dominated by an immense monolith of granite that stands, I would say, about 15 feet high. And it was obviously sculpted into a kind of a, a rectangular shape. And it's a very beautiful stone. It's uh, pink granite. and has all these enormous um, courses of quartz crystal and veins of quartz crystal. And just being in a place like that, it, it actually has a resonance about it. Um, it's been established that when you get large amounts of um, Granite like that, that they it has a radioactive effect. They are re- actually radioactive, not to a dangerous degree, but to a, a degree of uh, altering human consciousness. That there is a relationship between uh, the way he, mammals in general, animals act peculiar around this place, and, and humans as well. It has a basically a calming effect. Um, So I believe that these places were sacred, not just because of some theological idea behind them, but I think that they were sacred because the ancients who built these places understood how certain minerals affect uh, human consciousness. And it's places like this are uh, megalithic wonders, really. And it's it's good to know that they still exist, even if they're not as famous as, as one or another. Inverness used to be... I think, in the Neolithic period, a, place, a, a capital of this sort of spirituality. And the Druid's Temple is
1: really an outstanding
0: place. Any of our listeners who get a chance to, if they're ever in Inverness or around there, they should look up the Druid's Temple. It's really quite a remarkable place.
1: Well, yes, I mean, what you've uh, referred to there is the idea of some of these megalithic stones being both imbued with energy and also emanating energy. And we were talking about quartz as a material, uh, that reminds us that, not only was the location of these megalithic sites very important, quite often they they seem to be part of a network as well, which would extend across sometimes enormous distances, you know, even right across the globe. But the material they were constructed from was very important as well. Hence, them doing things like at Urgra, taking this stone and moving at all that distance. And thinking about Stonehenge... Which is in the you know the south of England. The stone, as far as I know, was quarried in Wales, which is far to the west. So, in some cases, the megalithic builders were transporting these stones hundreds of miles. So, and they didn't do that because there was no stone whatsoever in the local area. It was just very important that what material they used and where they were uh, the constructions were sited.
0: You're absolutely correct. There was a study made in the 1990s, right around 1990-91 in which there was a uh, perfect correlation found between the location of these Neolithic sites like Stonehenge and the Druid's Temple, relationship, not of all of them, but a majority of them, to either former uh, tectonic areas or else uh, still moderately active seismic zones. In other words, these predominantly granite structures were deliberately set up over fault lines, earthquake fault lines. The most outstanding example of that is Karnak. The That's a very famous uh, place, of course, again, not too far from Air Gras in uh, Brittany, western France, uh, almost Atlantic France, and there's just hundreds of of these stones that are inserted into the earth and they are in great rows no one could understand why this was done but now it's uh, there's been a clue revealed because those stones in Karnak are in fact inserted into the a predominant uh, fault zone earthquake fault zone so there w- there must have been a relationship that was seen by the ancient neolithic engineers between these stones and the energies of the earth. They must have understood where those energies are. That's an achievement in itself. How do you get a pre-modern people able to determine where the fault zones are so accurately, you know, precisely where to place these stones? That alone implies a technology that is really far in advance of anything we would have ever associated with. Stone Age people. And yet they did that. It isn't just by chance. There was a fellow by the name of McCarthy who did the research in the early 90s, as I said, and found out this correlation between these Neolithic sites and earthquake areas, earthquake prone areas. Interestingly enough, uh, in North America, you see the same thing. The uh, mound that I talked about called Monk's Mound in Illinois, across the Mississippi River from St. Louis, that also is in a major, as a matter of fact, it is North America's major chief fault zone, earthquake zone, called the New Madrid Fault, and there is this where this uh, pyramid structure is set up. It's very interesting, and I think it's uh, we begin to do our ancestors a terrific disservice by not acknowledging their genius in these things.
1: That concludes part one of our interview... Be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is legalisefreedom.com, That's legalize freedomcom where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalisefreedom.com.